There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper, and a big welcome again to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. And uh, delighted to be uh, back with you as, as ever. I've um, got another incredible guest uh, today. We're going to be talking about the business of expertise with David C. Baker. But before we speak to David, um, I'd like to say uh, a big thank you to my guest last week. Uh, Gene Early has become um, a, a good friend um, from when I met him in on a, on a quest, a leadership quest out in Kenya a couple of years ago. Uh, and he's a very insightful man. He was um, one of the founding people with, with um, regards to neurolinguistic programming. Um, he's uh, run a, as a vice chancellor of a university in Hawaii, set up a a health organization and he works with an organization called Leaders Quest and we had a conversation about best self-leadership and uh, and some of the things that uh, Gene really felt were important for for leaders to really think about at the cutting edge so we talked about uh, some really key and deep concepts so if you're interested in leadership and really taking and elevating your leadership to the next level I would recommend that you go back and listen to that show so my guest today he comes courtesy of a, a very good mutual friend, uh, Stephen Morris. He's a, a marketeer, an artist, a thought leader, uh, and uh, based over in uh, San Diego. And uh, Stephen and I have become really good good friends. Um, there's some shows in the archive on Curiosity, and there's one with Studio Leadership with Libby Wagner and Owen Suliban. Great interviews. And uh, and and Stephen said to me, "You've you've got to got to connect you with my friend David C. Baker." Uh, and uh, he said you won't won't regret uh, connecting with him and interviewing him. So let me just uh, tell you a bit about what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the business of expertise, and uh, and an amazing book that David has written. He's written uh, five books now. So this is um, uh, worn in the in the portfolio. But it really really resonated me with when when I read it, and and uh, I really felt that it was a book that I was missing. Uh, for my uh, my bookshelf, but also you know one of those books that you could take away and study if you're somebody who um, markets and shares your expertise out into the marketplace, um, and and it really sort of shows the steps to um, sort of deepening your expertise and having a greater impact and uh, generating you know more revenue and opportunity through your work. Now. Um, Perhaps there's no surprise, this is quite a different book as well that he's written, that David's got a really interesting and different background. He grew up with a tribe of Mayan Indians in a remote village in the highlands of Guatemala. He's also an author now, a speaker, he's an advisor uh, to entrepreneurial experts, but he's also a helicopter and an airline pilot. He's an avid photographer, and he's even taught high-performance motorcycle racing. So a fascinating background. We'll find out a bit about those as well. He's owned a marketing communications firm for six years. And then he started a management consultancy, focusing in on helping entrepreneurial experts to make better decisions um, through his writing, his speaking, his advising. As I mentioned, five books. The third one, Managing Right for the First Time, recently was named Inc. Magazine. Uh, in Inc. Magazine is one of the top 10 books on management that entrepreneurs should read. Uh, and I agree with that, having looked through it. And he speaks 30 to 35 conferences a year. Uh, and he's a real um, avid um, uh, visitor and guest on, on podcasts all over the world. So a huge welcome to uh, David C. Baker. Thank you, Chris. It's really good to be here. I've uh, been looking forward to this for quite some time. Uh, knowing Steve mutually was just an instant um, stamp of approval, so to speak. If he said I should be on here, then I was automatically interested in doing it. That's that's it's fantastic. Yeah, and uh, and likewise with Steve, you know, I really really trust his judgment, and I think it's you know great when you know people like that, and it can connect you because uh, the network is really really powerful. Um, I'm really fascinated, David. You know, firstly, just tell us a bit, tell us where you live, but right now, because I'm just always interested in where, where people are, but you've got to tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up in Guatemala and how did this happen? Sure. So uh, <laughs> isn't it weird when we're in a conversation, we we start a conversation and then at some point we realize, 
oh, I need a mental picture of whoever I'm speaking with. Where are they right now? There's something about geography. Yeah. So uh, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I've lived there for 25 years almost now. At the moment, I'm in Atlanta. We have another home here because our uh, my son and his wife, my daughter-in-law, they just had their second child. So I've been oh, waiting, <laughs> waiting for that. Um, but I grew up overseas. So I, I was born in the U.S. I'm a U.S. citizen. But when I was just a couple years old, we my parents moved to um, first to Costa Rica, San Jose, Costa Rica, for one year where they learned Spanish. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. And um, then we moved to Guatemala. We lived in this little teeny village called San Miguel Acatan. It had uh, no electricity, no running water. No stores, no roads. It was very, very remote. And dad did dental work there and mom did uh, nursing work. And then together they did a lot of literacy work. So I I came to the U.S., um, you know, the first time I remember anyway uh, to live was when I was 18. And that's when the whole experience struck me. It didn't strike me as all that odd when I was living overseas. It just seemed like a normal life to me, even though it was in the middle of the Civil War, so it was a little bit rough. Um, but but coming to the U.S., I realized, oh my goodness, my upbringing was quite different. I didn't go to school, any formal school. I didn't have homeschooling. I, I um, My parents ordered a a course from a university and then I just kind of self-taught myself for two or three months a year. I could get through the material and then I would just roam the countryside the rest of the time. And it's left a huge impression on me in terms of how, you know, the lenses I see the world through. I tend to test the the maxims I hear or formulate on my own through that more global lens. And it's, um, I don't regret any of my upbringing, although I do feel a little bit like a fish out of water sometimes, especially when I'm playing like trivia games and I've missed two decades of that life and I have no idea. <laughs> I, here, this is the, one of the funniest. So when I came to the U.S. in the 80s, it was, it was 1978, I was 18, I was born in 60. And uh, the first night in the U.S., we were staying with some friends that we knew in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. And this guy died named Elvis. And I didn't know who he was. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, we stayed up all night watching movies that Elvis starred in. And I was thinking, man, I don't get this. The guy is a terrible actor. Why is everybody so upset? I had no idea he was a mu- musician, right, at the time. Discovered that later, obviously. So that's just a a very small microcosm of all the weird things that I did when I first came to the U.S. (laughs) (laughs) And do do you have a perception then of, uh, you know, of of the the, the best way to school? Because you've had a very different schooling experience. You you know, you've done well uh, out of uh, out of your life and really made the most of it. You know, does this sort of formal going to school? Is it is it the the right way to go about it or do you learn more by um you know, actually experiencing. I think school is way overrated. We have made such a complicated mess of life. Like we have to send kids to school when they're three and then when they're four and then keep going and they have to be in the right schools. And I, I don't think hardly any of that stuff matters. We, um, I, I, I think the most important thing you could do with your child is really to read to them and ask them to write a lot. A lot of the skills you learn around math are not useful unless you're headed into an engineering type background or architecture. I I just really believe we ought to relax about a lot of that stuff and let and you know take your pull your kids out of school for a year and take them to travel the world with you. Our neighbors just did that, and uh, he quit his job. They took the, the three kids out of school. They bought this used RV and drove all around around the country for a year. I just think that's fantastic. We need to relax a little bit. There is not a right way to do things. There's room for a lots of creativity. I think. Yeah, we, we've got a, a guest on the show, Casper uh, Craven, who's. Uh, I've been a he's, a, he's a good friend. He took two years out, took three kids, sailed around the world for two years. Oh, uh, fantastic. What an experience they had. No devices on the boat. And uh, they learned all sorts about fish and all sorts of just interesting, fun things. And had an amazing time together. So you became a helicopter and airline pilot. 
how, how did this happen with high-performance motorcycling as well? Yeah, I guess uh, the the common thread through my hobbies are they need to be very dangerous and sometimes expensive. Unfortunately, if 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 both of those things aren't true, I'm generally not all that interested, which is kind of odd. I, I'm a huge risk taker. Uh, I don't enjoy pain, so I tend to stop at a certain point. But the the flying, I grew up around flying because in you know the parts of the world that we were in, that was kind of how you got somewhere if you wanted to get there quickly. So I grew up around aviation. My uncle, two of my uncles um, were were pilots as well. So I grew up around it. And on my 30th birthday, I just thought, I passed an airport on the way back from work one day. And I thought to myself, you know what? Why don't I just learn to fly? Like, this can't be that hard. I didn't even tell my wife that I was doing. So I stopped. I got my first lesson and really took to it like a you know, a duck in water. It was just like, I really, really loved every element of it. And I was working for a company at the time that offered to pay for it. And then I became the, the, basically the business pilot for the company. That was when I was 30. Um, and I, it was a lot of fun, had my own plane. It got a little boring. I'd get up, set the autopilot, and then you really weren't there to do anything. And except when you were flying a real strange, difficult approach or if something went wrong. So I decided that I would, um, on my 40th birthday, again, I didn't make any big decisions on my 50th. I guess I missed that. But on my 40th birthday, I decided that I wanted to learn how to fly helicopters as well. So started that. And um, it's been, what I've really loved about it is the multitasking that you learn to do. Um, The other thing that's more recent is learning how much we can emulate around teaching styles. If you think about what it takes to teach a new employee a skill or to teach a new manager how to manage people. Where do you let them make mistakes and where do you step in and take the wheel? And I've been thinking about that experience recently a lot about how um, instructors are such great models of that. They let you make mistakes. They don't let you kill yourself or kill them, but they let you make all kinds of mistakes in order to learn. And I think there's so much in that model that we could emulate in terms of, of teaching in our in our environments. I feel I feel another book coming on. I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, I'd love to keep talking about all of that and actually why why um, country music is country music one of your things? Sorry, Nashville. Oh, you'd think it would be, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm in the heart of it, the the center of the world for country music, but it really isn't. I, I, I love music. Oh, my goodness. In fact, I was a music theory major for a while in vocal performance, but I don't enjoy country music all that much, although I love the music scene in Nashville. So it's it's yeah. a small city comparatively, you know, half a million people, a million in the greater area. But everybody is, uh, you know, they don't pay attention to anybody who's important. You can be important and just kind of run around the city. It's it's really. Have you been to Nashville, by the way? I, I haven't. No, city. I mean, I, like you, I, uh, country music's not my thing. I'd be more sort of heading somewhere, sort of blues and rock and various things like that. But um, it'd be an interesting place to visit. Yeah. Oh, it's a great place. We love living there. Really love living there. Yeah. Um, so we, we've got, we're coming on to expertise now, and you, so you've you've. Had this fascinating background. Why? Why expertise? What? What took you into that sort of field? And what's the sort of clients you work with? Who this? Uh, this book really helps. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I don't think I even began to figure out the answer to that until months after I finished this book. Oddly enough, I had written various books before, and all of those books were more of like a textbook style, you know, listicles and lots of how to do things and what not to do and principles and so on. And so when I sat down to write this book and I, I wanted to write this book, oddly enough, I had been five years since the fourth one came out and I just really needed to write one. And I thought, okay, this is a good topic. I never got terribly excited about it. I, I finished the research and the outlining, which to me is the really hard part. That's like building the walls and putting the two by fours up and the drywall and all that drywall paste and sanding. It's just messy and, and hard work. And then the writing to me is where it's fun. It's like painting all those walls and I get to see it come to life. So I'd finished all the research and the outlining and I was getting ready to start writing. I was very excited about that part of it. But as I began to write, 
I didn't feel this passion rising about the topic, and it was disconcerting because I felt like, well, the saddest thing is I felt like I'd just wasted a whole lot of my life putting all this effort into the book. So I just took a step back for two days and talked with my wife about it, and I said, listen, this has got to change. Instead of a 120,000-page or word book that's more like a textbook, like my other books, maybe this one needs to be more of a manifesto, more something passionate. So I I chopped it way down and only wrote 40,000 words, decided to illustrate it, and then I took a lot of risks. I mean, I wrote some things in here that – have a clear point of view. And some people are not going to like the book and some people will, but it's not going to be a textbook that you just absorb and then accept and put on your shelf. You're either going to love the book or you're not going to be impressed yeah. at all. So that, that's, that's really the background for it recently. Excellent. We've just got a couple of minutes to commercial break, but why is the business of expertise so necessary today? Why is this book just right for the moment? So one minute. <laughs> Partly because there are too many people making stuff up as advisors, and it really makes me mad that they don't know what they're talking about. And the other reason is because I see really good advisors who are not making money, and they're not making as big an impact as they could. And so I wanted to help those sorts of people. That was the goal. Fantastic. So after the break, we're going to uh, really talk about, um, in the next section, sort of the, the three sort of foundational principles or areas of this book and um and i think um by you know talking through those with david you know get a sense of uh, some of the components that are just really important to think about and really important to get right and could avoid you years of uh, of mistakes and uh, uh, low low levels of income so we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm talking about the business of expertise with David C. Baker. And we're going to now in this section, we're going to talk about at the principles, some of the key principles of this book, and or the key foundations, as uh, as David calls them. And so let's let's talk about these, David. I think uh, the first one is about good positioning and noting noticing patterns. And I think that needs some explanation, really. So do you want to just you know talk about that and help us understand what you mean? Sure. So you know the non-controversial point I'm making in the book is that intel the foundation of intelligence is really pattern matching. And and I don't think there's any dispute about that. You know, we can even tell how intelligent a child is before they can speak because uh, we can measure their ability to notice patterns. We can hold up duck, duck, goose, and they can point to the one that doesn't match the pattern. And then, of course, that gets deeper and deeper as the, as the child grows. So if the essence of intelligence is pattern matching. How do we put ourselves in situations where we can begin to notice those patterns and then monetize that 
those pattern um, that noticing those patterns. In fact, um, when the big review in the New York Times came out about the book, the author of that, Carl Richards, said, "You really should have titled this book the monetization of pattern matching." And I, I think that's true. I probably should have thought of that. The idea is that um, you will never notice patterns until you put yourself in situations that are similar to one another. So I remember over the years, one time in particular, this really stood out to me. I was I was talking with principals of creative firms. I was doing that every week, several times. And I noticed that some of them were introspective and some of them were not. And I had no idea why that was the case. But the only reason I had the opportunity to notice that pattern was that I was talking with individuals who ran similar firms over and over again. That's and what it turned out to be is that they were on the edge of signing a new lease for their facility and the only long-term commitment they were making to their business was at that boundary lease. Anyway, so the fact that I was talking with similar people gave me the opportunity to notice these patterns. Okay, what gave me the opportunity to talk with these similar people? It was a positioning decision I had made at the time that I am going to work consistently with firms, with, with principals who are running entrepreneurial creative enterprises. So in this world, and this world is so different than the world 20 years ago because the world has now been Googleized. In the past, it was enough to have general information and because people needed to hire experts who were close to them geographically, they just hired experts who were the best ones that they could afford that were nearby. Nowadays, because the world has been Googleized, we have an expectation around knowledge that we can find within seconds and almost for free deep information on any particular subject. It just doesn't matter what it is. We can find it quickly and cheaply, almost for free. So in that world, we have people who want to hire advisors who know very specific things. That makes it impossible to be an expert unless you focus. Once you focus, then you have the opportunity to see similar situations. Once you have that under your belt, you start to see the patterns emerge, and you can you can bring that insight to your clients and charge a lot for it. Ah, that makes that uh, pretty clear, actually, what you mean by that. Um, I don't, I'm not sure the monetization of pattern making, of, of, um, Pattern matching would be a, a a very regularly searched key term, though. Uh, <laughs> That's probably true, and not a very passionate title either, is it? <laughs> no, not really. I think the business of expertise. I can I can understand get what that means um, pretty straight away. So I think you did the right made the right call on the title, in my my opinion. Um, so so really, you've got a you've got to notice patterns, and then um, your positioning is about really becoming an expert in that um, specific pattern or field rather than a generalist. So is it better to be an expert, expert than a generalist? I think it's better to be an expert in your professional life. I think it's better to be a generalist in your personal life because yeah. if you're an expert in everything, you're going to be really weird and you're not going to have, <laughs> you're mm -hmm. not going to have the broader context uh, to test your specific knowledge in. So you need to be a very deep expert in your professional life, but in your personal life, I think you need to be borrowing from all kinds of really interesting things so that you can keep testing the specific things you learn in a professional setting. Uh, that's good advice, that one. So the second principle was about gaining control in relationships. So what do we mean by that? How do we gain more control as an expert? Right. And, and I want to clarify that I'm not talking about gaining more control in personal relationships. That would be not the goal here. This is really about, about expertise relationships, about professional services. The idea is not to gain control in those relationships to abuse the client or to charge more than you're worth or anything like that. It's simply that your clients need you to be in charge. They if they are in charge, then they are setting the agenda and you cannot provide expert, objective, outside expertise. So the best clients expect the, their advisors to lead or direct or control the relationship. The way to do that is to make sure that you don't need any given relationship. So if you decide that it's important for you to lead in that relationship, just like your doctor does, your attorney, your architect, your engineer, 
every expert that's worth their weight is going to be leading the relationship. If you decide that's what you want, then you need to determine early on, very early on, how to what degree your prospective client is going to let you lead in that relationship. And if they aren't going to let you lead, then you need to move on. That's why it's so important to have a positioning that delivers to your doorstep all kinds of excess opportunity so that you are not trying to talk yourself into a fit when a fit does not exist. Does that make sense? It makes an absolute enormous amount of sense. I'm immediately thinking about a situation that's uh that I'm involved in that I've stepped away from for precisely that because uh, mm. uh, I, I the, the client had a particular uh, felt they had a particular need for me but I actually know their need is something uh, different and right. uh, but they're so keen on, on controlling the situation and deciding exactly how something is done and, um, and and the route forward that I think they lose lots of value and uh, and I wouldn't be able to do it and be myself Right. Or sleep at night because you're not delivering the value that you're committed to. In many cases, you are going to find you as the expert in your client relationships, you're going to find that you care more about solving the actual problem than your client does. Yeah. And that can be almost untenable. You, It's OK if there's just a small gap, but if it's a huge gap, then you have to move on. And just go to work with somebody that really is going to that's going to let you lead. It's going to let you make a difference in their situation. Yeah, I suppose the the other thing you can you can do, and I experienced this with another client situation last week, was uh, I felt with this particular relationship, two people are very um, str- strong individuals, was actually that it had to change. And, mm. uh, and if I went with their agenda, their agenda, which was not um, elevatory enough in my um, in, in my opinion, then I wasn't. We weren't going to achieve the value that they really deserve. So um, I had to take quite a quite a stand with it. And I decided I'm 50 years old now, which was a few months ago, that I'm going to be myself and I'm going to add the value in that situation. Um, otherwise, um, I may as well not be there. Uh, and uh, the, the, the situation, I'm pleased to say, was a um, fantastic one. The feedback was great. Um, ah, but it, took, it took a bit of bravery to do it. Right, um, right. And uh, I don't if you read Brené Brown's book, um, Braving the Wilderness, but um, it yeah. was like, it's one of those stepping into the wilderness and being being brave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're not afraid of the truth. And sometimes, and many times, when you don't know what to do, you just have to do something. You have to step into that void and be the adult, be the leader, and trust that the truth will surface under your kind tutelage, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, and and, and um, I think the, the, the third one was about about, about achieving marketplace acceptance so um i think so i think there's probably actually so there's probably a little bit more around the control thing i think um, i think what you were su- suggesting in the in the book by being that expert um there's, there's a control in the relationship but actually by being that real expert and then you're probably more likely to have some control in the relationship um but you've also got to you've got to achieve um, acceptance in the marketplace and um uh, and uh, therefore, and of course, a flow of work coming through to you, um, right. not spending hours finding it. So how do you go about doing doing that? I think this is changing. Like the answer to this question is different than it would have been even five years ago. Uh, I'm writing an article on this right now, so it's really fresh in my mind. The idea is that experts, some experts feel like, oh, they, they shouldn't be giving away much insight for free because then why would somebody hire them, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like, especially this reference back to Google again, it's a shame, I guess, that Google has such a huge influence in how we conduct business, but Google is going to lead people to your website uh, through organic searches. And unless you publish valuable insight that stands out from the rest of the nonsense out there, then Google is not going to reward you by sending people to your website. Okay, so then how do you reconcile that with the fact that you need to get paid for your insight? I feel like the more great insight you give away, the less you have to prove yourself when you get an opportunity to work with a specific client. The difference between the two settings is that you give away lots of stuff, but you don't apply it to them. When you begin applying it to somebody, then you are going to charge a lot of money like every expert should. 
But when that begins to happen, because you have been so prolific in, in the insight that you published, they already have some sense of what you're going to say, your style, the process you're going to use. The relationship just unfolds in a more natural way. So that's part of how we get marketplace acceptance out there. And also, it doesn't matter. Let's say I'm working with an expert. I'm an advisor to an expert in a particular setting, and this expert is struggling. And I go in, into that situation and I notice like, wow, you are better than you think. Like when I look at what you are charging, I think you should be charging more. I can say all of those things and I can really genuinely mean them, but it does not change the situation. It doesn't change until that expert begins to have acceptance from the marketplace itself. So sometimes we have to take a step back and help help our clients um, hone their own positioning and their own lead generation plan. And once they start to get, uh, I guess, confirmation in the market, then they start to believe that they're worth more in that place. So it's, I guess it's somewhat of a complicated answer, but I feel like it's falling together in our world as we understand how this works. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, do- does, make, does make sense. And if, if you're finding creative ways to put information out there, then um, as you say, people will... I have an impression and know you. I, I had one did a, I once had a, a radio show when I had a, a guest. Unfortunately, had um, had a, a major bereavement just the day before and had to pull out last minute. So I did. Um, I just talked for an hour on the show about engagement, and I was very surprised that a, a CEO called me up out of the blue and said, "Can we talk?" I listened to that interview, and um, you know, I really get a sense of who you are, and it would be really good to have a conversation. Yeah. Um, so it was really nice, actually. I didn't expect out of doing that. I was kind of, you know, filling in, but doing um, doing my bit that I would get an outcome like that. Um, yeah, it's amazing how that happens, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's lovely. Um, so I also want to just um, it was something that resonated with me in, in the book as well, and that was your thoughts on size of organization, because you know people. People strive, don't they, to to build an organization with people and desks and office space often. And uh, I think you've got some really good insight on that, about how big your organization should be when you're you're dealing in expertise. So, Mm, Yeah, that's fun to talk about for me. There, There are a couple. There's a part A and a part B to that. You know, the part A, which I think is a little bit more obvious, is that you should size your organization based on what you as a leader want to do. If you still want to be on the front lines doing a lot of the work, then it's not in everybody's best interest if you decide to grow your organization because growing an organization means primarily that your role as the leader must change. You must move away from doing and more towards leading. And if you aren't willing to do that, then the organization you're creating is going to suffer because it's going to be leaderless and will be large and even more dangerous in that sense. That's that's part A, and that's a little bit obvious. But part B is, I could almost answer it uh, almost like a smart aleck and say, well, like what, what's the right size? The right size is less than your opportunity. Like that's always the right answer. It's less than your opportunity. So if you have um, X amount of opportunity in the marketplace, then your size is X minus two or whatever it is. The theory behind that is that your so I mentioned earlier that sometimes the best way to lead a relationship is to not care about landing that relationship. In the same sense, the the best way to run a profitable, impactful um, enterprise is to not need every, to close every client. Mm -hmm. And if you don't preserve your ability to say no, in other words, if you feel pressure to somehow land every piece of opportunity that comes your way, you will be compromising not only on the price that you charge those clients, but you'll be compromising on the kind of client that you're willing to accept, ones that don't fit your culture very well. And that's a recipe for disaster. So I always want the size of your enterprise to be less than your opportunity to preserve your ability to say no. Have I explained that in a way that makes sense? Uh, it makes complete and utter sense. I'm, I'm, and I'm understanding that from experience. Um, ah, yeah, yeah. You've I've, seen I mean, that yourself. Have, well, once having a, a, a consultancy with about 25 people in it, um, yeah. 
and uh, being a, a founding partner of it. And, you know, we're getting to a point where loads of great work coming in, loads of revenue coming in, you grow, grow, grow. And then you have times when, you know, cash flow is slight and you you can be in a situation where, you know, you're thinking, crikey, do I need to extend my mortgage to put cash flow in? And it's suddenly, you know, it's suddenly um, rather painful. But if you stayed a bit smaller and turned a few things away, then you would have been, uh, continued to be profitable without such a big wage bill. So I, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And I think all of us have experienced that, right? It's, we, we see it and like sign up for too many subscriptions and then we discover, oh my goodness, look at this monthly outlay, you know, and then you feel pressure to save money elsewhere. It's just, it's crazy the kinds of things we, we put ourselves into instead of just thinking a little bit more carefully about it. Fantastic. So when we come back after the break, we're going to talk um, uh, uh, some more about some some of the critical steps to get your positioning right, and you know how, how do you test it as well. Uh, so do come back after the break. There's going to be some really mo- some great insight uh, I know from from David C. Baker from his great book and from all of his wisdom. So do join us again in just a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. We're back again with uh, David C. Baker. We're talking about the business of expertise. And and David, um, I'm I'm kind of intrigued. What is the... What is the connection between expertise and enjoyment? Should you absolutely love what you're doing? Because um, yeah, sometimes you can do that, but there are some things you've got to do when you're running a business that maybe you're not going to enjoy so much. What's your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm getting set up here because I know uh, this is this is going to be a somewhat controversial answer because I do – so the way you asked it, I think, is should you enjoy what you do? I The answer to that is – hopefully, uh, but not necessarily. Um, if you do enjoy what you do for a living, should you be grateful for that? Absolutely. But I think the world is constructed in such a way that sh- that we should not demand to enjoy everything we do in a business setting. And this goes back to our earlier conversation in the first segment about where I grew up. Those folks didn't have the luxury of seeing on a bumper sticker like follow your heart and success will come, uh, which I hear so many people say in one form or another. I just don't believe that. Those folks were out there. They weren't following their heart when they were doing subsistence farming in order to eat and feed their kids that day. They were doing what was necessary. The other hand, you know, there are a lot of people following their heart who are not successful. And so I want to be careful about that sort of advice. I what matters to me is that you are moving the needle on behalf of your clients and that you are making good money as an expert. And then if you can layer that third element of enjoying what you do on top of that, oh my goodness, that is fantastic and you should be forever grateful to be running a business like that. But I don't want us to flit from one thing to the next if we just are not enjoying parts of it because 
there are components of life that just simply need to be done. And I don't particularly enjoy brushing my teeth every night, but I do it. You know, there's certain things about running a business of expertise that I don't enjoy, but I have to do it. So I just want to be careful about that advice, I guess. I just want to question it just a little bit. I think it's I think it's really good advice. I think uh, I think probably the self development industry in some respects have uh, you know have suggested to people that they should follow their hearts and uh, and and do the things they love do to do and and actually it, it's it's quite hard work when you get out there, particularly if you've been used to you know a good fixed salary in a in a corporate setting and then you 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 head out and you realise actually there's an awful lot I need to I need to know and I need to learn and it's uh, quite a vulnerable place to be so. You know, yeah, people like you who've been really have been successful doing it, but quite a lot of people who are really, you know, still struggling and after many years and chipping away at it. Yeah, and we can't, we shouldn't be dishonest with people. We shouldn't, you know, sell them these these promotional sort of shows where we can promise everybody's going to be successful. That's simply not going to be the case. So I'm I'm a little disgusted at that part of our modern world, and I wish we thought a little bit differently about it. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and I think often some of those people who sell that advice are just you know clever at marketing and have built quite big em- empires out of doing it. But it's uh, you know is it always right for uh, the people who kind of follow them? I don't know. It's yeah. um, quite a interesting uh, an interesting debate. So you talked about positioning. What are the critical steps that we need to go through to really really get our positioning right? Because it's. Uh, it is very easy to find yourself, say, working with clients in multiple sectors and things like that. When you could have could have been sharper and said no to some things, so you, as you say, you build expertise in a in a particular niche. Um, what's what's your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I, I, and part of the research that I wanted to conduct for the book was meant to answer this question. So here we are as an expert or a a hopeful expert anyway, and and we're a little bit undifferentiated. We're not quite as narrowly focused as we should be, and and we're faced with this walk that we have to take moving from generalist expert to focused expert. How far do we walk along that path until we get to the ideal place where we're not too generalist and not too focused? That was part of the research I was trying to conduct. Now, the answer to that only applies to folks in the professional services space. I simply don't know how to answer that question elsewhere. But in the professional services space, we need to walk down that path until there are somewhere between 10 and 200 prospects who match exactly what we do. And we can also answer that from the standpoint of, uh, excuse me, 10 to 200 competitors and then about 2,000 to 10,000 prospects. That's really the ideal space. If we have too many or more than 200 competitors, then we're too easily exchangeable. We don't we don't have any power in the marketplace because our clients can find an, a, a suitable substitute for our expertise. If there are fewer than about 10 competitors around the world doing exactly what we do, then there probably is not quite enough opportunity out there. So we're aiming somewhere in that range. That's how I would answer that question. Yes, I think that's uh, really, really, really good advice, actually, uh, to think about that. Where do you, where do you go? Now, one, one thing you mentioned uh, in the book is uh, horizontal and vertical expertise. Um, I'm not quite sure what the difference is between those. What what, what is it? Yeah, the vertical expertise is easy to explain, and that's simply by industry. So if we're talking about financial services or tech or or even a broad vertical would be B2B. So if we're an advisor to one of those vertical industries, then then that's vertical expertise. Horizontal expertise is defined a little bit less uh, precisely, and it's defined around either a demographic or a service offering. So let's say that you work in in coaching uh, executives of publicly traded firms. That would be horizontal expertise because you're doing a specific service across any vertical industry. Or let's say you are helping um, with crisis communications or investor relations across industries. That would be a horizontal expertise. And there are different principles around how you would craft a vertical versus a horizontal expertise. And I spend quite a bit of time in the book explaining how those are different and what the advantages are and so on. Right. I see. So I see. And it's deciding um, where your particular 
um, I, suppose, I suppose you can kind of put this all into some kind of a matrix, can you, and with uh, industries that might might appeal right. and might like your mm-hmm. service or you've got experience in and then maybe on the left-hand column put the you know the different types of things maybe you you coach you facilitate you train you uh, and then decide where you where you fit yeah exactly and and you know one of the early mistakes we typically make at this stage of the decision making process is we try to come up we write down all the experience we've had and the types of experience the types of industries and so on and then we try to draw a circle that includes as many of our past elements of experience as possible because we don't want to waste any of those. And that's a mistake from a positioning standpoint because you have to be intentionally wasteful. You almost have to be in that sort of a mood before you make any positioning decisions for yourself. You know, like when you're about ready to clean out the attic, you yeah. have to be in a in a wasteful mood. You have to be willing to throw things out. That's how you have to be when you're talking about expertise, because there are so many elements of hard won expertise that you don't want to leave. And, and so you try to craft an expertise that in the end looks like something designed by a committee. It's a disaster instead of a really pure vertical or horizontal expertise. I I think that's for me, that's a a really idea of being intentionally wasteful. Uh, is um, a real gem out of this uh, out of this conversation um, because uh, yeah I can see personally how I, I, I serve as multiple sectors and both horizontally and vertically and actually um, need to go through that exercise <laughs> really really think about that that's very very valuable I know it will be very valuable to a lot of people that I, I connect and uh, uh, and speak to as well um, and how do you ensure that your positioning um, remains relevant over the long term. Mm, yeah, and what is the long term, right? I think the long term is a little bit shorter than the long term used to be. I I want folks to come up with a positioning that lasts at least five years. Ideally, it can last longer than that. So picture you're going to print a bunch of brochures and it's going to cost you a lot of money because you're going to put a lot of design features into it and so on. You want to be able to use those brochures for 10, 15, 20 years, ideally. I guess people don't do those things much anymore, but that's the idea is you want a positioning that's going to last a long time. I There are some ways that you can test it before you launch the, launch the positioning, and then there are some ways you can test it afterwards, sort of back testing to make sure you right, made the right decision. One of those pretests is whether or not you have 10 to 200 competitors or 2,000 to 10,000 prospects. That's a good way to test it in professional services. Another, and this is one of my favorites, is what I call the drop and give me 20 test. Uh, The idea is this mean sergeant and you've done something wrong and the sergeant says to you, all right, drop and give me 20 push-ups. You know, everybody laughs at you and you're sitting there doing it, embarrassed in front of everybody. It's, It's the idea that at any moment, the the sergeant could say, give me 20 push-ups. And, and that's how this works as well. At any moment, I could say to you, give me 20. So I there's two assumptions around this. One assumption is that I'm intelligent. The other assumption is that I know a fair bit about your field, but I'm not the expert that you are. Given those two things, can we have a conversation where I have a bunch of aha moments? So let's say I'm talking with Chris Cooper, and Chris, um, and, and Chris is assuming that I'm intelligent and that I know a little bit about where he works, the space he works in, but I'm not the expert he is. Can in our conversation, Chris and David talking, am I going to have a bunch of aha moments where Chris tells me things about where he works that I would have never realized before? If I don't get some of those aha moments, then it's not a good positioning. So, you know, it kind of goes on and on. And then later, you know, did you make money? Did you direct the relationship? Um, Is business easy? Is new business easy for you? So there's lots of those tests that we can apply, but those are some of the more important ones. Yeah, great, um, great answer and response. So, um, is there? I think we just got probably got um, two or three minutes le- left. Is there a, a question I've not asked you that I should have done? <laughs> uh, you know, what is it? What is it about life that you want? Where you want to have an impact? One of the questions that I think about. Of course, I'm older now, so maybe this happens a little bit more frequently. I'm older than you are, so maybe you'll ask yourself this question later. Is you fast forward and say, uh, and and you then you look back on your life and say, 
did I have as much impact as I could have? And you ask yourself that question, and then you, and then you think about how you would answer it. And if you decide that you didn't have as much impact as you could have, what will be the reason for that? Why did you not have as much impact as you thought you might have had? Will it be because you didn't have enough opportunity? Or will it be because you didn't focus, you, did, you weren't disciplined and focused? And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, the main answer that has to come up 99 out of 100 times is that I was not as disciplined and focused as I could have been. I allowed myself to be drawn off mission by all these shiny things that caught my eye and seemed fun to explore rather than buckling down and being really, 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 really good at something. And I think that's how we ought to view life as well. Not so much in our personal relationships, but in our work. If we really want to make an impact on the world, find some place where you can absolutely dominate and quit being drawn off mission to, you know, because you're intelligent, you're curious, and it's so easy to get dragged off mission that way. I think that's an absolutely awesome way to leave the show. It's a, it's a question um, I've, I've been pondering um, with my now being 50, um, actually over the last few weeks as well, that, uh, that question about impact. And uh, I think you answer it, answered it perfectly there around you know, having, having focus and not pulling off mission and getting clear about your positioning. Um, I think it's, this has been a really, really fascinating interview, David. And uh, I have genuinely enjoyed reading the book um the business of expertise uh, i'd recommend that people if you're in that field you need to buy it and uh, read it and uh, and study it and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation as well david i think um you know you're really um adding some value to people here and uh, if you can help people to make more of an impact and be able to look back on their lives when they're older and think actually uh, you know I, I got more focused and um i added you know as much impact as i possibly could even after a few stumbling blocks, perhaps. I think that's really very, very worthy. So thank you very much. Hope you've enjoyed being on the show today. I have really enjoyed it. I really appreciate all the thoughtful questions and um, I appreciate the chance to chat with your listeners and uh, thank you again for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, I hope for even one day we'll get you back again to maybe talk about another book or a bit more about this. Um, so if you want to connect with David, go and visit uh, davidcbaker.com. You know, check it, check his um, his content out. Um, there's great ideas and thoughts in there. If, you, if you're interested in the business of expertise, you can buy and study the business of ex- expertise. It's uh, available for sale, I'm sure, from all good um, book sort of sources. And um, excuse me, on next week's show, and we have uh, a friend of mine who's been on the show a couple of times now, but it's been a few years since. He's, uh, he's a real favorite. His name's Frank Furness. Um, uh, actually, he calls himself Frank Furness. He's from South Africa, um, but he's uh, an amazing um, person in the area of sort of sales and also marketing. We're going to talk about video marketing, and he's got uh, literally millions of followers, followers uh, around the world um, through the, the different videos he's put out, and he speaks prolifically at conferences and major events all over the globe. So do join us next week. We're going to talk about uh, video uh, and how we can use that in our businesses to um, you know, create more impact and elevate our, our businesses and our thinking. Once again, great to speak to you all. Thanks very much to David C. Baker. And if you've got any questions or comments, feel free to email me at chris at chriscooper.co.uk. We thank you for listening to the Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more.